you turn with me now in the scriptures to Philippians chapter 1? Philippians chapter 1. Our text this morning will be verses 9 through 11. I'm going to ask you to stand with me now out of respect for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. May be seated. If there was any congregation in the apostolic era that we could say the Apostle Paul really seemed to have a heart for and a deep love and affinity for, I think we could say that it would be the Philippians. The Philippian church was a church that was great in love. It was great in faith. It was great in spiritual maturity. And it was great in the support of the ministry. In fact, the Apostle Paul can say of the Philippians that they were the ones that supplied him so thoroughly out of deep sacrifice that he called it robbing them to be able to serve the Greeks who were unwilling to give so sacrificially to sustain the ministry. So this is a congregation that the Apostle really deeply loved. They were near and dear to his heart and what strikes us then as we come into this prayer this morning uh, reinforces a great principle that we could all agree to. Those whom we love the most, we want the best for. Those whom we love the most, we want the best for. And it's clear the Apostle Paul, uh, as he loves this congregation with such depth, he wants the most for them. And it is of some interest, as we've just noted here, this congregation is, is quite a congregation spiritually. But the apostle, as he sits down to write this great letter, knows that though they have attained much in Christ, there's much more to strive after. And one place you can pick that up uh, that's reflected in this epistle is in chapter 2, where the apostle says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves and do not merely look out for your own personal interests but the interests of others think of this the apostle says make my joy complete it's as if that there are things that must happen there is change that must occur uh in the philippian congregation for the apostle paul to have a a greater fullness of joy for this congregation and over and on account of this congregation. And as you read through this, you have to be impressed with what a laundry list of change that he seeks. It's substantial change. That there would be greater love, greater unity, less selfishness, less conceit, more humility, more seeking the interests of others. You see, these are great things. These are enormous spiritual things. This is of tremendous substance and value and worth. This is moral excellence. They've already begun, but the apostle is now seeking greater moral excellence for this congregation. But what strikes us this morning as we see the positioning of this prayer of the apostle for the Philippians is that his praying precedes his admonishing. His praying precedes his admonishing. He knows there's great things that must still happen. There's greater moral excellence and application that must be achieved by this congregation. But instead of beginning with admonitions, he begins with prayers. And this prayer here, as you look at it in verse 9 through 11, is a prayer for moral excellence manifested in loving others to the glory of God. This prayer of verses 9 through 11 in chapter 1 
is a prayer for moral excellence displayed in loving others for the glory of God. And here is the key that we want to seek this morning, is that prayer is the means of attaining this moral excellence in serving others for the glory of God. Prayer is the means of that. So let's work our way through this this morning and see what the Apostle has for the church. We break down this into two parts, moral excellence in thought and moral excellence in action. And we can see our first request now as we come into our text in verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge in all discernment. I want us to begin here by placing the particular prayer within its context. And you, you can see that really verse 9 is reaching for something that precedes it. When he says, and this I pray. It's uh, maybe even a little bit more clear in the original. The Apostle Paul is returning to a thought which has already begun. So if you look back in our context here, you can see there is the beginning of the thought expressed in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering my prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. You can see then the apostle has at least broached the topic of prayer, if not always begun praying for them. And it seems to be a fairly consistent thing. We have that language which we should be familiar with now, having studied several of all prayers. Uh, when the apostle talks of remembrance, he's using the language of prayer. He speaks here of thanking God and all of his remembrances and prayer being the means and the occasion of that remembrance. But what gets more specific is as you move into verse 4 here, he speaks of praying with joy and in every prayer. And the thing is, the word that he uses here for prayer is not just the religious practice of praying, but the specifics of praying. The word here is about specific petitions, specific requests. And so we know that what's on the Apostle Paul's mind already from the outset of this book are specifics, matters he's already given thought to, that are things that he knows need to occur within the hearts and minds and lives of the Philippians. But he doesn't go into that prayer. You'll notice he transitions from speaking about prayer into gratitude. As you read here in verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And I don't think this has to do with their participation in the gospel in terms of faith. I think the word that the apostle uses here when he speaks of participation is a participation by way of maintenance, a participation by way of supplying financially for the needs of the apostles. 2 Corinthians 8 speaks of this great sacrifice that the churches of, the Macedon of Macedonia made for him. And particularly what's in his mind there are these Philippian churches. And he speaks of how they sacrificed until they could give no more and they gave some more on top of that. And so it was known across the region where the Apostle Paul went. He spoke of how these generous saints so loved Christ so loved the gospel, and so loved the ministry that they gave all that they had to support it and sustain it. And so he speaks here of, of giving thanks for them and for their great love of Christ and for his church, manifested so tangibly in how they manage their resources financially. But he also speaks of the grace, the grace that they have experienced in verse 6. I'm confident of this very thing, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. We have two aspects of, of God's work. He speaks here of a work that has already begun. And of course, we know that's the work of conversion. It's the work of regeneration. And what better example or illustration of this great working of grace begun in the hearts of someone by God than that St. Lydia. Remember this Celerate purple, as she sat by the waterside with all of these maidens surrounding her, reading the scriptures, the Apostle Paul comes and joins the group and begins to expound the word. And we're told that while the Apostle was preaching, that the Lord ripped open her heart so that she would believe the things 
which are being spoken of. When we think of the Philippian congregation, we forever think of this Saint Lydia who was so graciously and sovereignly converted to Jesus Christ. We'd also think of the Philippian jailer who in the middle of the night is ready to commit suicide because he believes that the prisoners have been sprung free through this massive earthquake and he's ready to die. He's ready to give himself up and sacrifice, knowing what would await him if any escaped. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And of course, we learned there the apostles began to preach the gospel to him in that very night. He yielded up his life to Christ. They had experienced grace. And so when the apostle here speaks of a grace begun in them by God, he speaks of a saving grace. But, but there's some other grace here because he says that there is a work that has begun and there's a work that will be perfected. There's something more that God is doing. And this is obviously the work of preservation. The work of preservation in the faith. And so he speaks with such confidence to the people of God that, that here the Lord in his sovereignty and his grace has brought them unto the Savior. And he encourages them with this great word. God will perfect it. You'll never fall short of it. He affirms that, that God will bring to pass the full outworking of salvation for them. And then that brings us to the, to the last portion of the preceding context where here the apostle just spills out his heart as he speaks about the Philippians. In verse 7, he says, it's only right for me to feel this man. Uh, to this portion we see as Paul brings in these words and this I pray now he's telling us the very specific things that he had in mind all the way back in verse 4 and you see the main request here your love may abound so let's start with love and I, I think maybe the first thing that may catch our eye here is the similarity thematically between this and the last prayer request we looked at of Paul's, which was for the the Ephesians. You remember that in Ephesians 3.18, he prayed that they would know the love of Christ. And basically what the apostle was praying uh, when he prayed that for the congregation is that he would know, uh, they would know the vastness of Christ's love for them, this deep sacrificial love, this atoning love, this uh, marvelous love of Christ. And the result of that love, we learned in the following verse, was they would grow into spiritual maturity, filled with the fullness of God. Well, as you look at your text here this morning, uh, what I want us to see is this tracks very closely with that, but with a difference. He speaks here of their love abounding more and more in real knowledge and discernment, so they may approve the things that are excellent, Clearly, the knowing of the love and the abounding in the love is inseparably connected to a great end of result, which is this maturity. But, but the love that he has in mind here now is a bit different. Because the love that he is speaking of is not their love for Christ, but their growth in love as a Christian grace. That's the difference. We might be thinking here of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, and love being a fruit of a Christian, fruit worked in them by grace, fruit worked in them by the Spirit of God. And you see here, this love that he has in mind, we just already mentioned in Philippians 2.2, 2, and we thought about that at the outset of our message here. The apostles said there was something that would make him overflowing and full and complete in joy. And it's this, that they would have the same love, a reciprocal love, a congregationally oriented love, a love of sacrifice and concern for one another, a love that was practical, a love that was spiritual, a love that united and knit their hearts together in deep concern and affection and ministry towards one another. And so the apostle, already by telling us in chapter 2, that he needs to be made complete in that, indicates that here's the reason he's praying for that. They lack it. And again, it, it, it's sort of stupefying and, 
and marveling to us as much as we can see of the love of the Philippians, the apostle is saying there's something yet lacking. It's quite evident that that love was needed in the very admonitions that follow. A love that would be manifested in a united spirit, a united purpose, doing things without selfishness and conceit of having more humility and regard for one another. There was a real need yet for a deepening of the grace of Christian love in their midst. And so he says, uh, I'm praying that this love will occur in you. And he says that this love would abound. And, and now we come into the thought of great excess. That, that would be spelled out already in this word abound, which is certainly about adding to what's already full. It seems that the best way to, to describe the sense of this term, it's adding to something that's already full. It would, it would be the equivalent of filling the pool up over here with water. And as it overflows, just continue to leave the hose on at the highest level possible. That it just continues to spill over the brim. That's what he's thinking of here. But to drive it home even further, I just have you know the series of qualifiers here. He already speaks of love that abounds. But then he adds more and more and still. Uh, you know, I don't know how much uh, further we can go to exhaust the imagery here to, um, to get the point across. What the intent here is to stretch the mind, to stretch our spiritual understanding, to think of what it would be like to be filled beyond capacity and yet more. He's not denying they don't have love. He's not saying they're loveless or they're cold or there's something radically wrong with what they have. But the thing that he is saying is no matter how much they have achieved, well, they need more. And I think the thing is uh, that helps us maybe get some insight into what this is about and what the apostle is really seeking here is the additional qualifications when you see what is to accompany this abounding love. And there's two terms here that engage the mind. Uh, love is to be accompanied with real knowledge and all discernment. Real knowledge and all discernment. And I think it's useful for us just to pause for a moment on each term because they both have something to tell us about this love that the apostle would seek in us. And, and this first is knowledge, which is a knowledge born of, I want to say, experience. Because there's another word for knowledge Paul could have used. And that would have accented the cerebral, the intellectual, the apprehending concepts and ideas by the raw power of intellect. But, but he uses a term for knowledge, which virtually all dictionaries would say it has something to do that shades over into the area of experience knowing by experience there's all different ways to know by experience but i learned uh, young children to learn by experience when i was a young child i was told not to touch the hot stove and to this day, I have a brand mark in my arm because I didn't listen to my parents. And I put my arm right up against a hot burning wood stove and it scorched my flesh. And I walked around with a brand in my arm for weeks because it was such a harsh burn. But there's one thing that you learn when uh, you learn the hard way is it stays with you. When your mom and dad tell you something to do and you don't listen, they say, well, I guess you're just going to have to learn the hard way. You don't want to learn that way because that way means there'll be some pain. But when you learn that way, sometimes you don't forget it. When you learn by experience, you deeply grasp something. I need to listen. I need to listen to my parents. They love me. Their concern is for me. That's what Paul is saying here. There is a kind of love and knowledge that 
that is a, a way of loving people in action, which is beyond just talking about it, uh, speaking in terms of platitudes and big ideas and 50 cent words. It's, it's a love in action that is guided by real experience, real awareness. But then you add the second to it, and it's quite interesting. Because this word for discernment is a word that um, it, it means to know how to do the right thing when there isn't exactly a strict legal application of the law to it, you know? I think that's the best way for me to describe it. it it's knowing the right thing to do when there isn't an exact law to say, that's what I should do. It's taking the principle, the moral principle, and applying it to the situation and seeing what needs to be done and then doing it. There's a, there's a, great, um, there's a great example of this in, in Hebrews uh, 5.14. Maybe helps us get, an el uh, get, get hold of this particular element of this um, idea of discernment being this capacity to, to look into a situation and to know what to do. But here the preacher says, solid food is for the mature. And he tells us who the mature are. Who because of practice have their senses trained to discern evil. Now, every word here is important because he's telling you who the mature are. But the thing that's interesting to us here is there's a, there's a bottom line necessity. The capacity to discern, to be able to distinguish to size up a situation, to make an assessment and say, this is good and that's bad. But the apostle is saying here in, in Hebrews 5.14 that there's a way that uh, the believer is enabled to do that. It's to have trained senses. We think of senses, we think of the ability to smell and to see and, and to touch and to hear and things of that nature. All of those metaphors may come into play here as we think about these spiritual senses, their, their capacities that, that we are fitted with by the Spirit of God, which help us look out into the world and assess it with the Bible, with God's truth in mind, in our eye. And he says that that ability to do that requires lots and lots and lots of practice. And, you know... Um, the thing about practice is, well, it's not always perfect. Uh, practice is the repetition. And, and um, sometimes it takes lots and lots of tries till you get it right. And that may be what's in view here is there are attempts at, at this application of the truth. But uh, through wisdom and experience and failure and inadequate knowledge and resources and because of complexity of, of life situation, you try to do the right thing and it just doesn't seem to work out. But the more I commit myself to that, well, uh, I'm gaining real training. And the result is I start learning how to discern. That's what the apostle is saying here. Love must be put into action. He says to the Philippians, you've done some great things. But what needs to happen for you to take this duty of love to another level is to have these senses trained, these spiritual senses trained in order that you may learn how to see its application. And then there's this last element to it all here, which is so interesting to me. He says, they are then to learn how to approve the things that are excellent. You see here, this prayer is that they would abound more and more in love, which is accompanied by um, this knowledge and discernment. And all of that has a payoff to it, he says. All of that has a purpose. It's so that they may approve the things that are excellent. Now, you remember the preacher said that discerning was about discerning good and bad. Here, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Here's the next level of growth for you, is that you will learn how to approve the things that are excellent. Not that are bad. There's a big difference between the two, isn't there? Uh, being able to distinguish between right and wrong and good and bad, and between good and better. 
being able to distinguish between good and even better. This is the goal that the apostle sets before you this morning, people of God, is that you would grow into such spiritual maturity that you would have the capacity to be able to distinguish between good and better and best and then plug in the best. Imagine that. What a calling this is for the believer then. Not, not to settle for what's mediocre or average or, or good enough. The, the apostle sets before each and every believer this goal to strive for. Not just good, not just better, but the best. And how I treat people, how I live as a Christian, how I provide for and reinforce and strengthen the church. To strive after that which is of the highest value. Not just how you doing today. But deep concern and sincerity when you come alongside somebody and seek to know what's going on in their life. Not just a simple word of encouragement. But something that is so precise and it's targeting that the way you speak and the way you talk about it, one, they not only know that you understand their situation, but you're actually bringing to bear some light and some truth that can help. You see, sometimes we're willing to think that we've done our duty of Christian love by simply showing concern or saying something. Well, Paul is saying there's something more. Not just to say something misguided and inept, but at least I tried. But when the love abounds with knowledge and discernment, able to approve what is excellent, the kind of love works its way out into practice in a way that's full of wisdom. That's quite a goal. That's quite a level of maturity. It's something that's born of lots of repetition and experience. But it's seeking to be extremely helpful to those who are around us. In order that we build each other up. I can hardly imagine a greater time of need for us as a congregation to know this. I can hardly imagine what context would it take, finally, for the church to really say, Yeah, this is something that could be useful. When it seems like life is going well, we can hear these kinds of admonitions and calls and say, well, yeah, I could see that. That's a good idea, you know. But, but in the midst of a situation like this that's so fraught with panic and the appearance of chaos to it all, and people are so disturbed and emotionally upset right now, they could be triggered over almost anything. The people of God would have such depth of love which is conditioned by knowledge and discernment and wisdom that we would know how to hold each other up. I know we're not supposed to talk about feeling that we don't quite have the strength or that we've been too discouraged or we may not be doing too well. I know because it doesn't sound pious or mature, but I'm sure there's people in our midst who are deeply discouraged, who, who want to be deeply uh, minister to and they want to be connected with and, and served and our job here the apostle Paul says is to seek that kind of moral excellence in thought first of all so that as we have grown through this process uh, of, of growing in knowledge through experience and application uh, having our senses trained that we are able to really begin to, to serve others in a way that is, is excellent. That's what he's praying for here. A love which is moral, that is wise, that is discerning, that is active. This is of the highest value. That's what I'm struck by as I keep on thinking about this. This is a, a love of the highest value. And it's a challenge. It's not syrupy. It's not Hallmark card sounding. 
It's not the easy chicken skin emotional reactive response. This is deep, powerful, spirit-guided love. That's what he calls the saints too. Now, let's see how it works its way on action. That's our second point. And uh, have, have us, uh, I'll have us jump here into the middle of verse 10 to now pick up the second prayer request. Uh, the words are, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. I, I know that the New American Standard Translation, and yours may uh, be this way as well. It may have the translation in order that. And that would suggest a purpose. It would suggest purpose. It would, it would suggest that the purpose of abounding in this love so that we can discern the things that are excellent is so that we would be sincere. But that's not the text. The text is actually indicating quite clearly the Apostle Paul is beginning now a second request. You see, the word that is translated in is the very word that is translated that, if you look back in your own Bible, let's say at verse 9, the apostle said, and this I pray, that, it tells you the content of the prayer request is going to follow. That's exactly how this should read. It should read, and I pray, and this I pray, that you may be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been fulfilled filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we know we're on to a second prayer request here. And I'm going to leapfrog over uh, verse 10 and go into verse 11, because it's really the basis for fulfilling this, okay? There's a moral calling bound up here in verse 10 that we are to be sincere and blameless. That's a moral, ethical calling. But that can't be carried out without... The condition being met in verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. And so let's think, first of all, of the excellence that we're being called to. It is an excellence which comes by grace to be filled with this fruit of righteousness. Now, we think about this idea of righteousness we're not thinking of justifying righteousness or forensic righteousness. The word typically used uh, uh, by Paul here would mean that. But there are places, like here, where righteousness speaks of a moral standard, an ethical principle. He is thinking here about that which is righteous by nature. And the thing that is righteous that he describes here is fruit. Fruit. The apostle is praying they would be filled full of the fruit of righteousness. They would bear a kind of fruitful righteousness which is thoroughly consistent and in conformity with God's law. That the fruit will have upon it the very stamp of righteousness. It will be the kind of thing that is pleasing to God. And, and it's an external thing, right? Fruit is something that you see. Fruit is something that you see. So this is evidently about character and disposition reflected in the things that I do. But here the apostle is saying, I can't have that without what? Without being filled. It means I'm passive in it. I, I, I need to receive in order to overflow and then live it. And the way is very obvious here. It comes through Jesus Christ. And here we cannot help but think about the grapevine, right? Jesus himself taught us to think that way in John 15. where I, I, He must have been next to a vineyard. I, I don't know, but, but it's pretty obvious he's using that metaphor when he talks about, I am the vine and... You're the branches. But I, I want us to, to fast forward in that thought of John 15, 5, where Jesus said, Without me or apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what we need to be thinking of now as we hear this prayer request 
of the apostle that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ. We come into this world which Jesus has already spoken about in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And the doing, well, it's spelled out in the previous portion of that verse. Jesus said, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. See, there it is. This is the same thing the Apostle Paul is talking about. He says they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And Jesus makes it very clear. It is impossible without Christ in you. Think of that. I can't do it without Christ in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Well, I must be in you. Is your condition. The condition of moral excellence is not me. Uh, rolling out of bed at 4 a.m. in the morning and, 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 and cinching down the sneakers and hitting the pavement for two hours and, and doing all kinds of spiritual callous. I'm never going to get better that way. I, I can't get better. I can't achieve this moral excellence well without Christ. I need to be filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ. I need Christ to abide I need Christ in me. That's the bedrock and the foundation of this excellence. So when you hear the apostle pray for this moral excellence, this great, deep, powerful, profound uh, spiritual transformation, let's never separate it from its condition. Because if we do, we'll be misunderstanding Paul and we'll be turning this into gospel. We don't want to do that. We want to do is remember always that it's out of the soil of grace that fruit grows. So it's excellence by grace, but this grace must manifest itself and work its way out in action. And the action is fairly clear in these twin graces, sincere and blameless. Sincere and blameless. We've seen the condition for this action of sincere and blameless, but let's start thinking about it. And the first word sincere was kind of an interesting word. It's built of, of, of two words, son and test. Son and test. Sincere. Well, what's sincere? Basically, you can figure out what's sincere by shining a bright light on it and, 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 and just looking through all the deep and dark crevices of something. That's what he's speaking about here. To be tested by the light. You see, um, what he's thinking about here is motive. Morality and action. Who I am towards others is always rooted if it's rooted biblically and Christianly, what's rooted in grace and real heart change? Remember we talked about the apostle already in, in chapter 2 expressing a concern for love to be put on display and in an action in a way that would contribute to unity. But, but then he really goes uh, doing a, a preacher's job there. He starts meddling. He said, I, I don't want it to be conceit. <laughs> don't do it out of selfishness. Make sure that's because you really do regard somebody. See, this sincerity is something of the heart. It's a motive which directs my ways. And it's a motive that's grounded in grace. A real experience of gospel transformation. Sincere. It's about why I'm doing what I'm doing. But I think if, if there's anything that Christianity can say right now to a world around us, that is seemingly unraveling is this. There's no hope in these other means. There's no hope in secularism. There's no hope in human philosophy. There's no hope in a bunch of societal engineers getting together and saying, here's how you get rid of racism or violence. There's no hope in that. The only way that there is hope for real change that impacts people to the left and the right and the, and the front and behind us is when believers are really changed, when a person has a real experience of grace so that their actions aren't just a farce. Well, I want to do good. Why? 
The reason for doing good is because of the love of Christ. There's nothing more repugnant than watching people do the formally correct thing so that they can grandstand by the very doing of it. So they get the accolades and the praises. I am sick of listening to swashbuckling, smarthy mouth bureaucrats and, and talking heads who always have these smart things to say that are just right for the moment that sound so empty. There's nothing in it. You see, we have something different as believers. There's something different taught in Scripture. That there must be a deep transformation in the inner character by grace. Because when that happens, we will be properly motivated to do what's right. When people jump in and start doing what's right for the wrong reasons, you can be sure it will result in corruption. And it will lead, it will lead to unsavory results. Paul is not commending selfish and self-exalting behavior. He's talking about behavior which is sincere, which flows from the heart, from Christ in the heart, from grace in the heart. But then he talks of blameless here. And, and I think this is a very... Uh, physical element to it because because if you go back and you look at the the various uses of this term um for blameless well it it has a lot of um physical altercation in it, if you will striking and dashing and stumbling and falling it, it's from that literal meaning of the word that it begins to have some metaphorical and spiritual application to the believer to, to be blameless, as the Apostle Paul is saying here, is that you are a problem for somebody else. It's that you and your behavior and your attitudes don't cause somebody else a problem. It doesn't provoke somebody's attitudes. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't come across as harsh to them. You're not hurting. You're not tearing down. You see, this word blameless is all about community and relationships and behavior and treating people in such a way that your behavior, instead of becoming a stumbling block to somebody else, is a means of lifting them up and encouraging them and strengthening them. That's important. What a huge difference. When the congregation becomes full of people who see it as their mission to be those who give a hand up, to lift, to provide real encouragement and help to others. That's growing in real grace. When I'm not just focused on myself, but the way grace changes me, I'm focused on it, how it serves other people and blesses them. Paul is praying for great moral excellence here in action. Sincerity. Sincerity. And blamelessness. And now notice the end of it all. Excellence has an aim. Seeking moral excellence in action. It's by grace. It's real action. And it has a great end to the praise of the glory of His grace. This is the climax of Paul's prayer here. The very climax of his prayer and he makes it very clear as he, as he winds down this prayer, this prayer for moral excellence in the church, and excellence in action, and excellence which is manifested towards others, and love. Well, it's not for them to receive the platitudes. It's for God. It's that he would be glorified. Calvin says, no life is excellence if it's not directed towards God's glory. Listen to that again. No life is excellent unless it's directed to God's glory. He also says there's no life that's free from offense to God. It's not directed to His glory. Every time we talk about these things, people of God, it is always so important for us to come back to this great 
touchstone and aim of moral behavior of the believer. It's always to the glory of God. There's something radically wrong when our piety becomes a reflection upon ourselves. It's radically wrong when a a kind of virus of spirituality ends up making me look good and making everybody look just a little bit worse. It should never be our aim to rise head and shoulders above everybody else so that people say, look, yeah, look at them. Apostle is very quick after playing, praying for things of the greatest excellence, says, be sure that all of it, from its root to its outworking, has a single aim, the glory of God. We should never get tired of thinking about that as the fundamental drive and motive of how we be to the glory of God. So you think about this for our application, I drive home one simple point as, as we walk away, and I take it from the flow of ideas in the text, and I reach back to the context here. And the context is really this, the Apostle Paul expressing thanksgiving and concern. Before he ever gets to this prayer, we can say very safely that the Apostle expresses thanksgiving and concern. Thanksgiving because of the obvious, true, genuine experience of Christ. The Philippians have had that. He says, God has begun the work in you. Praise the Lord for that. That was his chief thanksgiving. And his chief concern is that it might be perfected. That it might grow. That they would not stagnate. That they wouldn't just pull aside now and kind of stop. His concern is that they would be moving forward. And so before he ever put pen to paper to write this letter in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knew of those admonitions that we read about in chapter 2. And there's other ones in this book too. He saw the way forward for them. There was something to be perfected. There was moral excellence to be pursued. But you know what catches my eye? Is that before... He proceeds to admonitions for those very things. He prays for them. He prays for them. Instead of barking out orders and admonitions, he starts by praying for the very things which will form the substance of his admonition. And it's in this prayer. That the love would abound still more and more in all knowledge and discernment so that we may prove the things that are excellent. He prays that they may grow in sincerity and blamelessness, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, that they may live to the glory of God. Those are the things that were on his mind from the beginning. And he starts with prayer rather than admonition. And the reason he does that is because he knows of the weakness of the believer. As we seek to grow in the things of Christ, as we seek to pursue the way of duty, we already know that it will be a way of struggle. We will be uh, constantly tempted towards selfishness and concern about ourselves and so here the apostle paul makes it very clear that the way we start on a course of seeking growth is prayer and so here by positioning at the outset of this great letter the apostle not only teaches us what to pray for but why we pray because prayer is the means the means that God has appointed in order that we may obtain the things he would seek in us. As we walk away from this, I hope as we've worked our way through this series on on Paul's prayers, there's been things that grab us along the way, things to pray, context of prayer, language of prayer, 
But the thing I, I think I would just love for us to walk away thinking about now, as we come to this exposition of this very uh, wonderful Christian prayer, is that we would not only remember its contents, but we remember what prayer is for. It's a means. Well, I love how the Huddleberg Catechism speaks of it. It says, why should we pray? What a good question. Why should we pray? And the answer is because of the chief part of thankfulness which God requires of us. And then it adds, because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who unceasingly ask these things of him and then render thanks unto him for them. It's a means. It's a means of grace. If you this morning know you have maturing to do, if you need a love that abounds in knowledge and discernment, if you know this path of moral excellence with its sincerity and blamelessness is what you need, it's a path and a course you've got to pursue for yourself. I remind you this morning that the first step along that journey is prayer. Prayer for the grace and the help of the Holy Spirit. And as we bathe the process and the pursuit in prayer, we can be sure that the things which the apostle sets before the Lord here for the congregation, God most certainly will answer and begin to put into practice in our life. So I leave us with this very, 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 very simple admonition of the apostle to the Colossians. Be devoted to prayer. By this means, God will work in us what's pleasing in his sight. Father, we thank you for uh, the apostles' prayers, which we know are not only the apostles, they are the prayers of the Spirit of God. How deeply encouraging it is for us to remember about the twofold intercession. There's the intercession of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, as our priest in our behalf. And then there's that great intercessor on earth in our hearts, the Spirit of God. And we marvel and give thanks for how the Spirit of God led the apostle to pray and to seek these things for the church. And now we, uh, receiving his command and example and instruction, seek them in our own life. Impress upon us, O Lord, this morning, that as we apply ourselves to the means you have appointed, uh, you by grace will grant the end that you desire. So hear us now for Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.